and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Colette and Tom here today to give you a bumper edition of the summer news from both the UK and around the world. So let's jump straight into the uh, judgment that was handed down on the 1st of August 2022 in Wright and McCormack by Mr Justice Chamberlain. The defamation claim was brought by Dr Craig Wright, who avows to be the true author of the 2008 white paper entitled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, which was published under the alias Satoshi Nakamoto. It's widely believed that Nakamoto is the person who invented Bitcoin. The defendant, Peter McCormack, is a cryptocurrency blogger who published a series of tweets and took part in a YouTube broadcast in 2019, in which he asserted that Dr. Wright's claims to be Nakamoto were fraudulent. Mr. McCormack abandoned his truth defence in late 2020, saying that he could not afford legal representation for the additional time that the trial of that defence would require. Consequently, the main issue to be determined was whether the 15 publications complained of at trial had caused or were likely to cause serious harm within the meaning of Section 1 of the Defamation Act 2013. Mr Justice Chamberlain relied on tweets and replies to Mr McCormack's offending publications as evidence of harm done to Dr Wright's reputation, rather than Dr Wright's own oral evidence at trial regarding his reputation in academic circles. However, the, and I quote, deliberately false case as to serious harm, end quote, advanced by Dr Wright until the days before trial meant that he was awarded only nominal damages of one pound. Well... It's very nice to be back and uh, nice to be doing this with you again, Colette, after our summer break. Um, This strikes me as a pretty straightforward piece of litigation. Uh, I haven't seen anything in it that uh, causes me to think errors were made. Uh, It seems to me that the uh, judge has dealt with the serious harm issue exactly as uh, we would expect um, from the High Court at present, given the recent rulings on how um, serious harm is to uh, be decided. Um, obviously, it's a rather sorry tale um, with uh, what's gone on on both sides in terms of the, uh, well, the defendant's conduct in the first place and then the claimant's conduct of the litigation. Um, but it sounds to me like it's been sorted out reasonably well by the judge. Um, and there we have it. On the 11th of August, we had a judgment from the Court of Appeal in Riley and Murray. The court upheld the trial decision of Mr Justice Nicklin at first instance that the defences of truth, honest opinion and public interest did not succeed. We've covered this a lot, Tom, in the podcast. Do you have any comments about the Court of Appeals judgment here? Are you surprised that they've reached this decision? Uh, I'm not remotely surprised, uh, and I'm not remotely critical of it either. Uh, listeners who've heard my uh, earlier musings on Riley and Murray will recognise that it's a, a case that I've found troubling, um, but it's a case I found troubling because of the way that the issue of meaning was dealt with in the High Court. And I've said plenty on that. I'm not going to uh, repeat that uh, today. Um, given the ruling on meaning and given that uh, there was no permission granted to appeal the uh, meaning ruling at the time, the appeal on the eventual outcome of the case once the substantive issues were uh, considered at trial was never going to succeed. The Court of Appeal has quite rightly upheld 
judges' uh, findings uh, of fact and law relating to the application of those defences, and there is nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, those defences were correctly applied by the judge at first instance, as I say, given uh, the meaning ruling that had preceded it, uh, and that's been correctly upheld by the Court of Appeal. There's nothing objectionable uh, as a matter of formal law uh, in this decision at all. Before recording, we were having a, an interesting conversation around the Carlson and Neiman chess controversy that's happening at the moment and the and the link the possible link that could be made out of the Riley Murray judgments. One matter I did want to talk about was uh, the chess furore uh, involving the reigning but about to step down world champion uh, Magnus Carlsen and uh, a 19-year-old American prodigy by the name of Hans Niemann. Um, This all arose out of a tournament held in uh, St. Louis, which is the home of chess in the United States, the uh, Sinkfield Cup. Um, It was a tournament in which uh, Niemann played Carlson and beat him somewhat unexpectedly. Um, After that game... Carlson put out a very cryptic tweet on social media. And that cryptic tweet um, was a reposting of a video clip featuring the football manager Jose Mourinho uh, saying in a post-match interview some years ago that uh, he did not want to talk because if he spoke, he would get into trouble. And at the time, that was something that Mourinho was saying in respect of controversial refereeing decisions. Um, But it was simply that short clip that was uploaded by Magnus. Now, as a result, in the days and weeks that followed, many people on Twitter interpreted that tweet from Magnus as being Magnus asserting that Neiman had cheated during their match. Um, Subsequently, some weeks later, uh, Magnus has come out, and whilst he has stopped short of expressly suggesting that Neiman cheated in that particular match, he has asserted that uh, he believes Neiman to have cheated more than Neiman has publicly admitted. Uh, Neiman has publicly admitted that he has cheated Uh, when a child, he admits to cheating uh, uh, twice in online chess tournaments when he was 12 and 16 years of age. Um, Carlson has come out and said he believes Neiman to have cheated more frequently than that, Um, but he hasn't uh, expressly said that he uh, believes him to have cheated in the Sinkfield Cup. Why did this interest me? Well, it interests me because of the things that I've said about Riley and Murray and the problem that I think Riley and Murray gives rise to. Riley and Murray has created a situation in which ambiguous tweets that provoke interpretations which are defamatory of the original tweeter can lead to uh, liability. And liability because those interpretive tweets are likely to be treated as assertions of fact if they are not accompanied by uh, a link to the original tweet. Now, there were thousands, thousands of chess fans who responded to this controversy 
by tweeting things along the lines of Carlson says Neiman's a cheat. And the irony in all of this and the worrying state of affairs, as far as I'm concerned, is that if he were so minded, Carlson could sue every one of those tweeters in the English High Court on the basis of Riley and Murray and on the basis of the uh, approach to meaning that uh, was taken in that case and which, uh, if you read through the judgment, uh, Mr. Justice Nicklin uh, tells us has been taken before um, by uh, the courts. And uh, it has been, but in, as far as I can see, rather different types of cases, um, uh, social media is presenting this novel problem uh, in, in terms of the, the way in which tweets are, are formatted. So as I've said, listeners will be familiar with my uh, critique of Riley and Murray and the difficulties that I, I have with that decision. Um, I think the Carlson Neiman Furore is a really good example of what could happen if there isn't a change in direction in the way that we deal with tweets that interpret earlier ambiguous tweets. Um, and my argument has been and remains that a tweet that interprets an earlier tweet should be treated as a, an expression of opinion, not an assertion of fact. Um, because how the second tweeter interprets the earlier tweet is a matter of subjective opinion of that second tweeter. And therefore, it should be treated as opinion. That's my, uh, that's my rant on Carlson Neiman. And we wait to see what happens with the rest. There have been uh, more reports coming out and analysis of Neiman's games. And uh, uh, some are saying that he is looking ever more suspicious the more one looks into his games. But he maintains uh, that uh, he's innocent of the allegations of cheating other than those to which he has already uh, publicly admitted. And that, as far as I'm aware, is the way things stand. Long-time listeners of the podcast will, of course, remember that uh, it was a newscast that predicted the Wagatha Christie scandal uh, with such conversations between Tom and I um, thinking about possible defamation cases as scandals emerge. So maybe we'll get another one here. Maybe if you are listening, Magnus. Please don't sue all these people. If you do, I'll have to talk about it. And uh, this saga will never end. Although I do think we have finally an end to Wagatha. Although I, I am pretty sure the last time we did a, a newscast, I said that this was the last time we mentioned it, and here I am mentioning it again. But <laughs> we have um, a cost order from Mrs. Justice Stein to Rebecca Vardy to pay Colleen Rooney um, £1.5 million in costs with an interim payment of 800000 following the conclusion of the libel trial at the end of the last legal year. The costs are to be paid on an indemnity basis due to the destruction or deletion of evidence by the claimants. And this was in reference to the phone of the um, agent of Rebecca Vardy that mysteriously fell into the North Sea before it could be requested as evidence for trial. So moving on from decided defamation cases onto uh, upcoming ones, which we're likely to follow through in this season of Media Law Podcast Newscast. And that is the new claim brought by 
Wimbledon spectator Anna Pallas against the tennis player Nick Kyrgios over allegations that he made against her during the Wimbledon final on the 10th of July 2022, which resulted in her temporary removal from the arena. Kyrgios ultimately lost the final against Novak Djokovic, but before that, he told the umpire that Palos was distracting him while he was serving. He told the umpire, you didn't believe me when she said it again. It nearly cost me the game. Why is she still here? She's drunk, out of her mind, speaking to me in the middle of the game. What's acceptable? Kyrgios described Palos to the umpire as the one in the dress, the one who looks like she's had about 700 drinks. Palace was then removed from the arena and allowed, later allowed to return. She's saying that Kyrgios caused her considerable harm on the day, obviously because she was removed from the arena, uh, but also the false allegation was broadcast to and read by millions of people around the world, which caused her and her family very substantial damages and damage and distress. Uh, what do we think? Do we think this will pass section one? This shouldn't pass through a letterbox in a chambers on a route to the desk of the clerk who considers who it should go to to write an opinion saying that this has no merit right this shouldn't even get into the post box in the first place ideally the royal mail would see it and set it on fire this is a ludicrous suggestion uh, uh for a libel case uh, there are a number of reasons quite obvious why Nick Kyrgios has uh, not committed any tortious infraction. And I do not say this as a fan of Nick Kyrgios, whose behaviour I typically find obnoxious and uh, and thoroughly off-putting. Um, but he's done nothing wrong here. Um, the most straightforward way to kick this is to point out that what Kyrgios did was to report to the umpire of the match, in good faith, a distraction. That is a classic instance of qualified privilege. He has uh, a right to speak to the umpire. The umpire has an obligation to listen. What is said between them is privileged. It only became uh, public knowledge because the BBC broadcast it. Okay, now the BBC is a publisher and a potential defendant, but Kyrgios isn't. Absolutely not. Um, he didn't identify the woman in any way that could have identified her to those, to those who uh, heard what he said. The party that identified uh, the uh, claimant here was the BBC with their camera work. There's nothing that Kyrgios said identified that individual to those who were within earshot of uh, the conversation that he was having. And in any event, I'm fairly sure I read an interview uh, with this uh, claimant, this, this, this potential claimant, who uh, said at the time that uh, she hadn't had 700 drinks, but it was very hot and the drinks she'd had had gone to her head, which sounds to me like an admission that she was uh, under the influence, in which case that's the sting of the libel, right? If there was one, that would be the sting of the libel, that she was drunk. Um, obviously, the suggestion she's had 700 drinks is never meant to be taken seriously and no rational uh, reader or listener, no rational uh, person to whom this was communicated, would think he literally meant 
that this woman had had 700 drinks. What he means is that she's drunk. She's admitted that the drink that she'd had went to her head. And that sounds to me like this is all just going to fall apart. So for all those reasons, but particularly for the reason of qualified privilege, which is why we have this defense, so that you can speak to the person whose job it is to regulate the activity that you are doing in good faith, this case has, as far as I have seen, according to the media reports, and that's all I can go by, in my opinion, no merit whatsoever. That concludes all of the cases over the summer that I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, there are others um, that I'm sure listeners uh, who are keen to learn more about them should go to the Inform blog and see uh, other updates there. But for now, I want to move on to the death of the Bill of Rights bill, which um, was shelved on entry to office of the new British Prime Minister, Liz Trust. The Bill of Rights bill was conceived under the former Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab and was intended to make clear that Britain's Supreme Court had legal supremacy and the ECHR decisions did not always need to be followed by the British courts. Raab, who has been replaced as head of the Justice Department by Brandon Lewis, had said that the bill would reinforce Parliament's role as the ultimate decision maker and strengthen rights such as freedom of speech. Here on the Media Law Podcast, we had strongly disagreed with that position, uh, namely because the bill didn't seem to recognise the right to protest as an aspect of free speech. So I I think it's fair to assume that you're pretty happy, Tom, that it's been shelved. Do you have any uh, specific comments on this? Good riddance to bad rubbish. Um, Of course, we don't know what is going to happen. We presume that this legislation is not going to return. um, But we're recording this at uh, just after 4.30 on the 14th of October, which is about two hours after um, Liz Truss has given an eight-minute press conference that may yet herald uh, another change of government. So um, we have no idea by the time you're listening to this, dear listener, um, whether the British government remains the same British government as it does right now. Um, for all we know, uh, Rab et al. might be back um, with their various bills. But at the moment, um, the Bill of Rights bill has disappeared from view. And for all the reasons that uh, Paul and I and, 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 and Colette have talked about before, um, it's a good thing it's gone. Final news item from the UK that I want to mention today is the inquest findings from the coroner's report onto the death of Molly Ruttle, the 14-year-old girl who took her own life in 2017. The coroner's report concluded that unsafe online content contributed in a more than minimal way to her death. Senior coroner Andrew Walker said material viewed by Russell on social media shouldn't have been available for a child to see. And he told the coroner's court that Molly died from an act of self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. Just this week, an investigation done by The Observer found that Instagram has failed in its claim that it does not allow material that promotes or glorifies self-harm or suicide. As a simple keyword search on the platform shows that many such images remain live. So this is an ongoing issue, which obviously is one of the main things that the online harms bill seeks to address. Um, We've spoken a lot about platform responsibility on the podcast before and where the lines lie there. Do you have any comments, Tom, um, 
based on these findings that maybe change any positions or consolidate any positions you've taken in the past? I don't think there's anything in this that changes the positions that uh, we've we've set out before on the podcast. Um, this is an issue that very much relates to the inspiration behind the online harms bill, and that is another piece of legislation whose future is very much unclear at the moment. Um, I cannot recall whether it's been officially pulled yet for, from uh, Parliament, but certainly there have been reports in the press that it has been very much put at the back of the uh, current, as in, as I'm recording, government's um, agenda uh, in no small part because of objections to some of the bill as drafted content from some of the new members of the cabinet. Um, I saw one report that the uh, oftentimes outspoken and self-declared free speech advocate Kemi Badenoch had particular issues with uh, the online harms bill. So it's unclear what's going to happen there. Um, What is clear is that uh, this is a deeply tragic case and that the coroner has taken the opportunity um, to, to declare publicly that something is amiss Um, and that uh, there need to be changes if more lives are to be saved. Now, how effective those changes can be remains to be seen. Is it ever going to be possible to sanitize the online environments in which young people uh, interact with one another to the extent that they cannot find this material if they seek it out? Uh, I suspect probably not, but uh, it may be possible to uh, get the major platforms to do something that prevents it coming into the view of those who don't seek it out, but might then be caught within its ambit um, by the algorithms. Um, So I suspect that that's the sort of area in which any reform is going to be targeted. Moving outside of the UK then to a, a kind of a more worldwide roundup, uh, I'm going to start in the US with the uh, award to Vanessa Bryant, the widow of the basketball player Kobe Bryant, who was awarded $16 million in damages over leaked graphic photo, photos of the helicopter crash that killed Kobe and their daughter in 2020. Images taken by Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies and firefighters are said to have been shown to others at a bar and a gala event. Miss Bryant told the court that she lives in fear every day of having these images pop up on social media. She said, and I quote, I don't ever want to see these photos. She wants to remember her husband and her daughter the way that they were. Also in the past month, uh, the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has been ordered to pay nearly one billion dollars in damages after falsely claiming that the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting was a hoax. The families of eight victims and an FBI agent who responded to the attack told the court that the right-wing radio host's misinformation had led to a decade of harassment and death threats. Jones had argued for years that the massacre was staged as a government plot to take guns away from Americans. He called the parents of victims crisis actors and argued that some of the children never actually existed. He now acknowledges that the attack that killed 20 children and six adults 
was 100% real in a concession he made in August at a separate defamation trial in Texas. I think there's a link between these cases which is worth uh, just mentioning, and that is in the size of the damages awards that have been meted out by uh, the juries in these cases. It's a unique feature of the US legal system that juries are involved in uh, civil cases and often involved in setting um, the damages awards that result from those. And it's not unusual for very high levels of damages to be awarded. It is unusual for a billion dollars to be awarded in damages. But I think in both of these cases, it's quite clear that the level of damages that have been uh, awarded by the jury are not truly compensatory. Um, and I don't think they're just punitive. I think what's going, what, what, they, what they are in English terminology is exemplary. They are sending a message that the behavior of the defendants in these cases was reprehensible and it must not be repeated. Um, this is particularly obvious in the Alex Jones case. A um, billion dollars is a ludicrous level of damages if you're talking about compensating, even for something as bad as he did, because, uh, uh, you know, we, we, could, we could sit here all day and start thinking of things that people have done that are worse, um, and we could have a big debate about it. Um, you know, what he's done is terrible, um, but the level of distress caused is unlikely to be quantifiable in a billion dollars um, if it's not quantifiable in something significantly smaller. I think it's just one of those things that, that, that it's either quantifiable or it isn't. Um, and, and distress is rarely easy to quantify, which is why English courts struggle with it. Um, this is a jury of ordinary Americans setting a standard uh, and saying, this is unacceptable. These sorts of conspiracy theories being spread and the harm that they do to people must stop. Um, and what I think is quite interesting is I think it, 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 it really hits back against accusations from people like Alex Jones that you know the law is out to get him, that the law is out to silence him, because it's not a rule of American law that he has to pay a billion dollars. That wasn't the US legal doctrine that set that level. It was a jury of his peers that set that level. And they made a, what is clearly a moral judgment um, against him. And maybe that is the advantage. And this is where I think we think it's worthy of comment. This is perhaps the advantage of using juries. Yes, they're expensive and they delay trials and everything's very difficult. And sometimes they do very unpredictable things and they make as many poor decisions, I'm sure, as they do good ones. Um, but what they can do is set social standards and they can do it in a way that insulates the law itself from criticism and maybe they are the best response to these sorts of outrageous actions particularly online where any state intervention will be labeled censorship um this is a response from ordinary human beings. Just a thought. I also want to mention the stabbing of the author Salman Rushdie on the 12th of August 2022 in New York. 
Um, the attack has been widely condemned as an assault on freedom of expression, and the alleged perpetrator, Hadi Matar, has been arrested for attempted murder. Rushdie has faced years of death threats for his novel, The Satanic Verses, which some Muslims see as blasphemous. In 1989, Iran's then supreme leader called for Mr. Rushdie's execution. He offered $3 million. He offered a $3 million reward in a fatwa, a legal decree issued by an Islamic religious leader that was never rescinded. There was an interesting piece in the Strasbourg Observes blog on the role of blasphemy laws in multi-religious societies in response to the violence committed against Rushdie, which concludes that all these laws do is choke public discourse in the arts placing and place authors and their bodily integrity at risk of sheer extremism. What are your thoughts on, on this, um, this opinion from the blog, please? And, and indeed the attack in general. That's a really interesting question, actually, to do with the... Uh the role of blasphemy laws today. Um, in the United Kingdom, we repealed our blasphemy laws relatively recently. Um, the repeal happened in a piece of legislation in 2009. Um, blasphemous libel was uh, removed from our uh, legal system um, because it had been used from time to time, even up, up until that point. Um, uh, it's interesting to me that despite this happening in the UK, blasphemy remains a criminal offence in a number of European jurisdictions, and the European Court of Human Rights is in principle okay with it, on the basis that it can be a, a, a proportionate restriction on freedom of expression with the aim of maintaining a social order. Um, so prevention of crime and disorder being one of the uh, legitimate aims um, that permits restrictions on free speech under Article 10 of the European Convention. Um, it may be time to start revisiting that question um, in the light of these sorts of incidents. I don't think it makes a great difference um, to individual acts of violence, whether a, a country has blasphemy laws or not, but it does... Um, create environments in which extremist views can uh, can be fostered. Uh, and if it is possible to have fewer such environments in Europe, I think that would be a good thing. Um, obviously, in the United States, um, one has very strong legal protections for freedom of speech and that hasn't prevented this from uh, occurring. Um, but I'm still troubled by the presence of some of these laws in other European jurisdictions. There is, of course, a point about cultural relativism, the need to ensure that whatever um, laws are in place in, in a particular jurisdiction are interpreted within and reflect the social context of uh, that nation's population. And that's one of the reasons why they remain, particularly in Catholic majority countries. Um, yeah, but I'm not comfortable with them. And I'm glad we don't have it in the United Kingdom anymore. It was high time we abolished it by the time we reached 2009. All right, well, that wraps up everything that uh, I wanted to talk about today. Tom, great to discuss with you again, and I'm excited for a new season of newscasts. 
Absolutely. It's been uh, nice to talk to you again, Colette. With plenty more of this in the months to come, I'm sure. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the uh, weeks and months to come. Thanks very much. Bye.